Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Oh man, it's so good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, you can take that out or turn it on, whatever your uh, mode of reading the scriptures is. But we're going to be hanging out in Matthew chapter 16 tonight. Uh, Next week, we are going to be concluding our Everyday Kingdom series. This has been a series of conversations around the kingdom of God and how the idea of the kingdom of God is that it was to invade and infiltrate every single day of the week, every single space in our life, every single relationship that we have, and that God's rule and reign would have no place that he is not invited into. And so we've been talking a lot through the lens of kind of your individual lives, the places of your work, um, where you're at home and in your work commute and all these different things. And tonight we're going to be taking a little bit of a turn where we're going to be asking, what does the kingdom of God look like every day in a community? And we're going to be talking about the church. And so this is not going to be an exhaustive teaching on what the church is and is not. But we're going to be studying tonight the very first time in Scripture that the word church comes up. The very first time that Jesus introduces the idea of what the church is intended to be. And how, like the kingdom is supposed to be every day, the church is supposed to be every day. And sometimes, without us knowing it, even though maybe cognitively you know that Sunday gatherings are not supposed to be the epicenter of church, uh, sometimes it's just kind of how it happens. And so tonight, our hope is that as we gain an understanding of Jesus' heart for the church, that we would begin to, to move into a different mindset, a different way of living as a community, that as we're in our workplaces, in the schools, as we're going to the grocery store, that every single one of us on mission would be able to bring God's kingdom in, in a communal sense that's greater than just what we can do as an individual. And so the idea of just the word church comes with this Greek word ekklesia, which just means assembly, right? It's just, it's individuals coming together and they complete something that's in the heart of God, which is kind of a phenomenon. I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, because yesterday is one of those Saturdays, right? It was raining, and we decided, we came up, uh, Jen came up with the brilliant idea, it's time to clean out the garage, right? And, and then all of a sudden, you start hearing the moans, like, oh, really? Can we watch cartoons? And that's just me, not my kids, right? Like, I'm just like, and, and so, but I'm like, you know what, you're right, it's time to clean up the garage. And, and if you're thinking of just like normal garage, um, normally we keep it pretty clean, because that's where the ping pong table is, And that's like a key to me and Jen's marriage. So we normally keep that space pretty clean, but it just kind of, over the few days, it kind of gotten rough. And then it kind of went to another level because we had this huge bin of those tiny little plastic beads. You guys know what I'm talking about? That you'd put on like rainbows and stuff, the little spikes came coming up. You know those little crafts you do as a kid and then you wax over it and it turns into an art piece? Oh, I hate those. Um, Because my three-year-old, like, found the big bin of these, like, I mean, it's probably tens of thousands of beans, and just takes and just goes like this, like, over our garage. And we're like, oh, man. Like, and so when when I come and tell my kids, like, guys, we're going to go clean out the garage. They're like, no, this wasn't even our mess. And I'm like, sorry, guys. And and I I know in that moment, I'm like, this is... This is not about just getting a clean garage. This is doing something in my children. This is creating a a good, healthy work ethic. Like, hey, even if this was or was not your mess, we're all in this together because this garage needs to be cleaned up. And then we get into it and we start cleaning up and all of a sudden, like the whining starts, right? And parents, you 
know what I'm talking about? Is there a more annoying sound in the world than when you're just like, oh, and just comes? And, and I'm like, and I, and I know it so well because I invented it when I was a kid, right? I, I invented the like, oh, my knee hurts. I can't do the dishes. And I was like, legitimately, like I convinced my body that my knee was in severe pain. And I got out of so many dishes that way. And so, and so this is all going on. And I, and I'm re- and I have this revelation as I'm cleaning the garage with my kids, and they're, and, they're doing, and they're doing actually their best. They're working hard. But I realize this moment, I'm like, I think I could probably clean it faster myself. Like, I think I could just probably do this. Um, and at the same time, I'm realizing that, but this isn't about just getting a clean garage. Right? This is us being together. This is about us accomplishing something together. This is about building character in my children. And, and as I'm re- thinking about this, it just kind of dawns on me, this is probably a lot of what's going on behind the heart of God for the church. Because have you ever thought about God's great sovereign divine idea to put a bunch of broken, messed up, wounded people together next to another broken, wounded, messed up person and then to say, hey, go carry out my mission. Like it's this, it's kind of beautiful, kind of hectic, kind of crazy idea. And I'm sure there are moments where we just think like, God, couldn't you just do this better yourself? But our Heavenly Father says, this is, this is bigger than me just snapping my fingers and getting it done. Because he's a relational God inviting his kids into his redemptive work. Because he desires not only to see the world redeemed, but to invite us along the journey for it. Because it's doing something in us. It's doing something in the world. It reveals the heart of the Father. And so I have just become increasingly aware as I've been studying this passage this week what a beautiful invitation the church is. That we get to be a part of this, of this messy, redemptive work called the church. And so we're hopefully going to get just a clear understanding of what Jesus had in mind. So again, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see the very first time that Jesus introduces us to the idea of church. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? I just want to pause right there, because I think that may be one of the most important questions you'll ever be asked is that Jesus, maybe even tonight on some of your hearts, is asking that very question, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, and he said, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Now, there, there has been many moments up to this point that people have speculated Jesus being the Messiah. This is the first time where we see someone claim his divinity. And so Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, this was not your idea, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this is, again, a phenomenal passage. And so we're going to kind of pull four different key um, ideas that Jesus presents here. And so the first one is the rock, not Dwayne, 
Uh, number two is the gates. Number three is the key. And number four is the builder. So we're going to kind of walk through these ideas that Jesus presents alongside the idea of the church. So let's start with the rock. So Jesus, uh, after Peter has this great confession, he goes, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on the rock, I will build my church. Now that, that phrase, on the rock, I will build my church, has been a phrase that has been debated about, argued about for the church for hundreds of years. What did Jesus mean by the rock that the church will be built on? I'm gonna give you kind of the three uh, main ideas behind what Jesus was saying here. And and the the goal here is not for me to convince you my idea. I would just love to present to you scripture. This is what this is saying. This is what the church historically has believed, these three different veins. But the interesting thing about it is, although I believe Jesus did have one in in mind, all three of these actually have truth built within them if you look at the whole scripture. So the first thing that we, the first kind of idea behind this is that when he says, on this rock you will build my church, he's talking about Peter. Now if you notice, he references Peter, which um, says, Blessed are you, Simon and Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petros. Now, this is, in the Greek, it's a play on words. Because Petros means rock. And so rock in Greek was a feminine word. If you ever studied Spanish or French, you know that there are feminine masculine words. Well, Petra is, is a feminine word for rock. And Jesus makes it masculine and gives it to him as a name uh, chapters before this. And so this is not the first time we're introduced to the name of Peter, but it's the first time we understand why the name makes sense. So he says, and you, and your name is Peter, right? Um, I tell you that you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. Which is a fascinating moment and, and where a lot of people feel leery of this is because they feel like it elevates Peter to some sort of like this, this place that's almost uh, above humanity. But I would actually, when I understand this, for me, it's the opposite. Because if you're the disciples hearing this and you're like, what? Peter? P- you're going to build your church upon this guy? I mean, th- none of them would have been like, obvious choice, Jesus. Great selection. Like, this guy was, was, was the jerk. He was the guy who put his foot in his mouth. This was the guy that just, uh, I mean, again and again and again just misses it. Which, for me, does not elevate Peter, but rather it elevates the ability that Jesus has to see potential in someone like Peter. This makes Jesus great, not Peter. Because in this moment, Peter is call, I'm sorry, Jesus is calling something out in Peter that no one sees yet, including Peter himself. Which isn't that what God does to each one of us? When, when the Holy Spirit gets of a hold of our heart, doesn't he start to speak a name and a destiny and potential over you that you don't even see in yourself yet? You see, we believe a narrative about ourselves that is pretty much kind of the summation of everything you've done wrong. I can do this, but I'm not this. This is kind of who I am. And then God steps into our life and he says, actually, I've called you to so much more. 
And this is the beauty of having a relationship with Jesus. It's the same thing he does with Peter. He does this with multiple people in the scriptures. And what he's still doing in us today is he calls out inside of us the God-sized potential rather than the human-sized failures we have strewn behind us. And this is a moment that Peter's having, that he's, he's given this immense responsibility. This is, in fact, is what Jesus is doing. Um, I was having a, a moment like this this week when um, my, my second-born daughter, Jubilee, was, was having a rough day, and she had a rough moment. I took her to her room, and I said, okay, Jubilee, um, we can't act like this. And, and she bursts into tears, and she says, I'm the worst. And, I'm like, and, I, and I remember just kind of pulling her close, and I'm like, that's not true. And then I remember, I started saying, like, do you, do you know why we named you Jubilee? I says, because in the Bible, Jubilee means a fresh start. A ju- jubilee means joy. Jubilee means redemption. I started speaking over her life. Hey, hey, my sweet eight-year-old daughter, I'm going to remind you who you are, not what you've done. And I see that this is Jesus doing this with Peter, because rem- remember, Peter has a pretty great moment when he confesses for the first time, you are the son of the living God, but Jesus is very quick to remember, you didn't think of this yourself. Don't get confused here. My father gave you that brilliant idea. And I think that that, again, it's this, it's this beautiful reminder for us that the church has built a foundation not of just some amazing guy named Peter, but really of a royal screw-up named Peter. And that that is a message to every single one of us that God can do incredible things through very ordinary individuals because of his greatness, not ours. The second idea behind this passage of the rock that the church is being built on, and again, the reason why there's debate around this is in the original manuscripts, there's no punctuations. So we don't have commas and periods to kind of point us exactly what's happening here. But the second idea here is that the, the revelation that Peter has, right? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That revelation is the rock the church is built upon, which again, makes a lot of sense. That, that's I mean, isn't that what we just read in 1 Corinthians 15? This is, the, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. He is the Messiah, the rescuer, the savior of the world. He is the son of the living God. This is what the church is built upon. Again, it, this, the rest of scripture supports this. And thirdly, is the idea of this spirit-empowered confession. So it's not, it's not who said it, and it's not even uh, only what he said, but it's the fact that God is empowering this man to confess the gospel. And that's how the church is gonna be built. It's through a bunch of men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit to confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so, in, again, in, in these three streams, I, I would encourage you... Um, and this is one of those moments I would, lo- I would love to ask Jesus someday when I get to heaven. I'm like, what, what did you mean here? But I don't think it's something I need to hang up on because the reality is, is every single one of these ideas, right? God doing great things through a broken individual, the incredible revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Spirit-empowered testimony and confession of a believer, all of these things are foundational for the church. This is how the church moves forward is understanding and grasping these things. But after we understand what he means by the rock, maybe you're like, I don't understand, I'm more confused. Welcome to church. Um, He then starts talking about this idea of the gates of Hades, uh, which is, again, is an interesting phrase. Some of your Bibles might translate that the gates of hell. 
uh, but the actual translation is the gates of Hades. And there's a reason why there's an exact translation here. So verse 13, at the beginning of the passage, it says, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples. So this is important. The reason why Matthew's including this detail of where this is matters. Because if you skip down to verse 18, it says, And I tell you that you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, so there's, there's two really, really important things uh, that we need to understand about gates. Because gates are not how we understand gates today. I mean, like, gates are cute for us, right? They keep out, uh, you know, the, the neighbor's dog. Or we have a little gate out here. You put up a little baby gate. I remember we, we put a, up a, a, a gate after when I was a kid, and, and our cat had kittens, and we were told, like, hey, if you're going to pet the kittens, you need to make sure the mom cat's out of the room. We're like, cool. And so we put up a cute little baby gate. And we're like, oh, we're totally fine. Until all of a sudden, the mom cat could see through the baby gate, jumps over the baby gate onto my little brother's back. And, and my brother begins to run around the room screaming, and the cat does not let go and just mutilates my little brother's back. And I'm just eating popcorn like, this is awesome. Uh, true story. I mean, every night after that, the, that mama cat would fall asleep on my little brother's pillow. So when he went to go to bed, she would be there just saying, come at me, bro. It was like a kid. It was literally, a, it was like a weird cat. So we had to go remove that cat from his room. But we, we just have, we don't understand. When he says the gates of hate, when we think of gates, we're like, oh, is it like a drawbridge thing? I mean, like, how does... How does the gates of Hades work? And so there's going to be two really important things here that, that matter a ton in us understanding what Jesus was saying here in this statement. The, very, the first one is, is a geographical understanding, and the second one is a historical understanding. So we have a couple pictures I want, I want to show. So it says this took place in Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it is in the kind of the northern region away from the Sea of Galilee, and there was a massive palace built, and the next to the palace was this uh, massive temple built right next to that cave. And, this, uh, and this, this town that was built, this temple, was built for the god Pan. It was this pagan god who was, uh, oversaw uh, flocks and the fertility of the land. And that cave is where sacrifices were given. And this cave was called, in ancient Greek literature, the Gates of Hades. So I want you to think about Jesus saying these words, the Gates of Hades will not prevail, and he can actually see the Gates of Hades. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, he wasn't talking about some ethereal, metaphorical thing. He was talking about a very real place that was doing very real, horrific acts. The sacrifices that were done in this cave were not animals, they were children. And so Jesus comes along on the scene, leaves the Sea of Galilee, brings them up to Caesarea Philippi. The only thing we know he does up there is he begins to start telling his disciple that he's going to build a church. And that the church he's going to build will not be overcome by this place. Again, this was the epicenter of pagan worship. This is a horrific, dark, dark place, which I think is so significant that Jesus didn't, didn't just share this vision for the church amongst his friends around dinner. He went to the darkest place he could think of and says, hey, the church I'm building will not be overcome by this. And you even begin to start thinking about the contrast that's happening here. Again, here's this, here's this pagan god Pan who is, who is pictured as a goat. 
who again takes these, these child sacrifices and things like that. And then you begin to start thinking about who Jesus was. Well, Jesus wasn't a goat, he was a lamb. Right? He, he did not offer sacrifices of children, no. Rather, he was the actual only child, the son of God who was sacrificed. The God Pan was never satisfied, yet Jesus' offering was all sufficient. Jesus is trying to paint a very clear picture. The kingdom of heaven, the church that I am building, is the opposite of that. This is why I came. This is what we're all invited into. Second thing that we need to understand here for this to kind of make sense is the historical understanding of how gates were used. So again, stick with me for two minutes. We're going to kind of like nerd out for a little bit, and this is all going to come together for us, okay? Um, So five things in scripture where we see gates used. Uh, Number one, gates were a place of strength. They were the strongest point in the city. So Deuteronomy 33, 25 says, the bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze and your strength will equal your days. Your strength, meaning your gates' strength will equal the amount of days you have. This was critical. Number two, the gates were your greatest defense. If your gates are down, your city's lost. And so if you go to any kind of archaeological dig, you will see every single city gate has these three enclaves, these three cutouts. So if an army tries to get through a gate, you have three places, really six, where armies can be there with swords and clubs and bows and arrows and hot oil, and they can make sure that no one's going to get through these gates because this is the place of defense. Uh, Number three is the place of commerce. In Genesis 23, we see Abraham selling and buying property in Verse 18 says, to Abraham and his property in the presence of the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. This is where commerce was done. This is where things were exchanged. Fourthly, this was a place where judgment was given. Notice in Ruth 4, this is where Boaz comes before the eldership asking for a judgment to be the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. And lastly, every single ancient gate had a kingly seat. So yes, kings had a palace, but they also had a royal seat or a kingly seat at the gate to pronounce that judgment. Even 2 Samuel 19.8 says, So the king got up and and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. So here's a big question. Who cares? Who cares about all the, the different functionalities of an ancient gate? Well, it matters because I think every single one of these things Jesus is addressing when he says in the very next line that the kingdom of God is coming. And he puts these two ideas. There's the gates of Hades and there's the kingdom of God. And here's how they're different. Why? He starts saying, he's like, well, the, the strength of the gates of Hades is where the enemy tries to flex his hollow and ultimately failing power. But the strength of the kingdom of God is when God displays and dispenses his unshakable, proven, and fully accessible power to all those who are in Christ. You see, the the defense of the gates of Hades is a lie that the enemy lines and strongholds cannot be penetrated or defeated. But the defense of the kingdom of God is the truth, that the victory has already been established through the victory of Jesus Christ. You see, the commerce of, of the gates of Hades is that everything rightly belongs to you, but you will never have enough. But the commerce of the kingdom of heaven is everything rightly belongs to God. And yet we have everything we need in Christ. The judgment that is, that is proclaimed at the gates of Hades is your identity is the sin and the shame you have accumulated over your life and your family history. 
But the judgment given at the gates of the kingdom of heaven says your identity is that you are now the righteousness of Christ. And the royal seat of the gates of Hades has been obliterated through the death and resurrection of Christ. But the royal seat in the kingdom of God has been, currently is, and forever will be established and occupied by the resurrected Christ. This is what comes to mind to the original hearers because this is what gates meant. And so when Jesus comes and says the gates of Hades will not prevail, there is profound implications of what he's saying. This is bigger than just a really cool military term. No, this, is, this is a holistic, everything that the kingdom of darkness has its grip on will come to an end. And it's going to come to an end because of the church that I'm building And this is an incredible, incredible invitation and reality that we're invited into. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't just end with this beautiful redemptive picture. The third thing we're going to pick up on is he starts talking about this idea of the keys of the kingdom. What what does that mean? What are the keys of the kingdom? Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this is, this is oftentimes a confusing passage because we don't ever talk about binding and loosening much in the world we knew. And sometimes it's mentioned in prayer, and, and that, that's all fine and good. But the idea of, of understanding the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosening are twofold. Number one, keys were not possessed by everyone like we do. I mean, every single one of you probably has keys accessible right now. Because you need them to get into your house, right? To start, to start your cool Tesla or whatever you're driving. Um, they, they didn't have like, you know, key fobs for their chariots or anything like that. So the only people that had keys were people who had authority. And so when he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, don't think accessibility, think of authority. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the authority of the kingdom of God. You get to bind and loosen. That Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Why do you need authority to do whatever this binding and loosening business is? Well, if you look at other texts written around that same time, we find that binding and loosening was an activity, kind of a legal activity that rabbis would do. Rabbis would, would take the text, the Torah, and they would interpret it and say, this is actually what it means. And in so doing that, they were binding and loosening the understanding of the text. And so this is a, it's an authoritative rule. You don't get to bind and loosen. Because to do that, you're saying the heart of God means this. And for Jesus, you're, you will actually have the authority to say, this is how it is in heaven. In God's economy, in God's realm, this is how we should understand the world. This is how we should understand the scriptures. And so we see Peter do a lot of things after this, right? He writes a couple epistles. He goes to prison, right? He ends up being martyred. He heals some people. But it was really only one time in scripture, according to what I'm looking at, where we actually see Peter bind and loosen something in a, in a rabbinical sense. And I think it's pretty powerful And it happens in Acts chapter 15. You see, at this point, there is a heated debate happening because all the followers of Jesus early on were Jewish until Gentiles start becoming followers of Jesus and then becomes this massive debate. And the debate goes like this. How Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus? 
Now, again, we don't really have that debate because probably most of us are not Jewish. But for the early church, it was everything. Because there was a sense, there was a sense of cultural identity. There was a sense of legacy and history. And so Peter gets up and addresses, through binding and loosening, their understanding of this is how the church should understand this concept. And this happens in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 11. It says, The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe, here it is, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Gavel down, right? It was this epic moment that we're still living in today where Peter, being a mouthpiece for the elders of the early church, gets up and says, hey, listen, once and for all, let this be known that the heart of God, the economy heaven is for everyone. It is the grace of God that invites us in. And, and I think about this moment back in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter's sitting there and being like, you're giving me the keys to what? I have the authority of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loosen, which only rabbis get to do. I'm just a fisherman. Can you imagine? It's like the first time you got the keys when you turned 16 and you got your license. Do you remember what you did? I remember what I did. I mean, it's the first time you had real freedom. I didn't even know what to do. I was just kind of like freaking out in the car. I'm like, I could go left or right. I could go anywhere right now. So I'm going to go get a Slurpee first off, right? A big one because no one's going to stop me. I'm an adult now. And then I'm going to go take my skateboard. I'm just going to go skateboard wherever I want. I mean, I just like, you know, probably had like the most like a lame first driving experience ever. But for me, I was like, I have the keys, right? I have the authority to do whatever I want. And in this moment, what I, what I love is that the authority given in that moment was later exercised for one thing, and that was to proclaim grace. It's about grace. It's not about what you do. It's not about how much you achieve. It's not about how good the sacrifice you give. No, it is, how, it is about how good your God is. It is about how much he has loved. And, and all of us today are, in, are standing, sitting, because of this proclamation, because it's by grace. All of us get to come and accept the amazing gift of Jesus which is the message of the church. And number four, and maybe in my, in my own personal life, and maybe for yours, the most important in all of this is this little tiny caveat we see in chapter, sorry, verse 18. It says, and I tell you that you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But did you notice who the builder is? I wonder if Peter did. It's not Peter. 
He says, I will build my church. I will build it. Which is such a sigh of relief for a young church planter like myself. I'm like, thank you, God. You're the builder of the church. And I just want us to be reminded of this because if we're to ask ourselves this question, God, what are you up to? What do you long for for this new community called Light Church in Encinitas? What's the goal? What do you want us to do, Lord Jesus? Give us your mission. We need to understand something very, very clearly. This church does not exist because of a strategy. It does not exist because of a denomination. It does not exist because of a pastor. It exists because Jesus is building something. He's the builder. Not anything else or anyone else. And if we ever stray from that reality, I fear for our destiny. I remember when we planted the church, I felt pretty good leading up to the plant. And then after our, our launch Sunday, about a, year, a little bit over a year and a half ago, I felt so overwhelmed. I remember driving in my car just being like, what have I done? <laughs> what are we doing? Like, I don't know how to pastor a church. I mean, I remember just being like, what is going on here? I remember calling my mentor in Colorado. He's a dear friend of mine who's also, he's a little bit older than me, but became a senior pastor. I think he was in his 20s. And I remember just starting to rant. I'm like, what about this? What if this happens? And what do people expect this of me? And I'm just kind of going on. And he just kind of slows me down. And he says, hey, this isn't your church. You're not building it. And it That conversation has shaped me as he just pulls me back to Matthew chapter 16. And since that day, I've I've said this prayer more than any other prayer that I've probably prayed since we planted the church. It just goes something like this. And I say every Sunday morning and most other days as well, I wake up and I'm getting ready or I'm taking a shower. I just start praying. I said, Lord, this is not my church. I'm not building it and it is not for my glory. But Jesus, this is your church. You are building it, and it is for your glory. And I would invite you to join in that prayer because this is not a pastoral prayer. This is the church's prayer. Jesus, this is not our church. This is your church. We're not building it. You are, and you're inviting us into work with you, but you are the builder And God, would you know all of this, would it be for your glory? I remember this week, um, Augustine, our three-year-old, grabs my hand and says, Dada, let's build a tower. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go build a tower in your room. He's got some cool blocks that Jen's dad made him. And so we go out in there and and I'm like thinking, I'm like kind of engineering it in my mind. I'm like, oh, this is going to be such a cool tower. We're going to have different sections. And I'm like three rows up, and he's like, smash it, and just like breaks it down. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we're just getting started here. And he's like, okay. So I start building up a little bit more. He's like, I smash it? I'm like, no, just, <laughs> just chill for a minute, bro. And he's like, okay. And we start like kind of building this thing that ends up resembling kind of like a tower. But I I think about the Father's heart to look at every single one of us and he says, hey, I want to build this with you. I'm going to build it because if you build it by yourself, you're going to mess this thing up. But if you build it with me, we can make something that's redemptive and powerful and so vital for the world around us. And that's our prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to to come on up. I would love to end with a song. But as they do, I'd love to,
I'd love to ask you just, or kind of give you kind of three just practical. My, my wife pointed out this morning, she's like, so what was I supposed to do with that sermon? I'm like, good point. So here's some practical stuff. If you guys are sitting here, like, just tell me what to do, Benji. Uh, number one, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. N- number thing I, I would love for you to walk away with after a message like this is to know you're not alone. You're not alone. You may feel alone, but you were never intended to experience life in Christ alone. And I would encourage you, if, you're, if you are feeling isolated or alone, I would encourage you next week, again, we're launching our open tables. There are opportunities for you to come and gather around a table with other people walking through life and begin to practice the way of Jesus together. And by the way, if you can't make an open table, invite some friends along. Find a community. Find a way. You can serve here. Whatever that looks like for you, don't do life alone. We were called to be the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. And that is how we are going to further God's kingdom together. Number two, I hope that you know that you're not defeated. That according to this passage, that because we are a part of the church, that the defeat we're feeling is temporary. And some of you guys just need to hear that tonight. You felt, man, kicked around. You have felt crushed. Paul talks about this in some of his letters. But let us be reminded tonight, the gates of Hades will not prevail. They will not win. We get to stand with the hope and the assurance that victory is coming. And would, that, would, that, would you allow that to bring hope in, in your soul tonight? And lastly, I would just encourage you to dream. I would encourage you to dream God-sized dreams about what God's mission and his church might look like through your unique life. I love that every single one of our open tables is different because every single one of them is made up of different people. But even for your own life, I'm not thinking of building the church means that every single one of you guys needs to be a greeter by next week. I don't think it's what Jesus had in mind. I think some of you guys have a dream to start an engineering firm where you're going to treat your employees fairly. I think some of you guys, God's putting a dream in your heart to create something that's going to inspire awe and change in the souls of others. I believe that God's going to put a dream in some of your guys' heart to invent something that's never been invented yet that's going to bring healing and redemption to the world around you. I don't know what that is, but I just want to give you permission tonight. God's church is ferociously moving forward and advancing God's kingdom because that's a vehicle Jesus chose. So don't limit your dreams to what you've seen. Don't limit it to what your fears say. Begin to start asking God, God, how do I advance your church? I guarantee you it'll be different than me. And it should be. Because that's how beautiful and dynamic the church of Jesus Christ is. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to, we're going to end the night with a, some worship and just praising God for who he is, what he's done. So you guys can just bow your heads with me. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. 